a.k.a. responsible, proper, social distance shit-talking from spare bedrooms across exurban Atlanta and Jackson, Mississippi. Welcome to the Godless Heathens Podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Don. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jerry. This is a podcast by atheists that talks about a lot of things, not just atheism. We will challenge your assumptions and ours, too. Definitely not here to preach to the atheist choir, but to critique, ridicule, and poke fun at anyone, especially ourselves. So join us as we examine the crossroads of politics and religion from the secular perspective. And remember to put on your critical thinking cap when listening to this podcast or any other so-called podcast. Episode 113, and it's a star-studded, extra-special episode. we got a very special guest. We'd like to welcome to our podcast Neil Carter. He's been a, a friend of our atheist group for a number of years. Back in 2015, he came to talk to us. He was doing the Godless in Dixie posting on Patheos, and so he's going to have to give us an update what what he's doing now. So welcome to the show, Neil. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. Good to finally have you on. It's it's funny. I give a little side story quickly. I actually met Jeff through Neil, not the other way around. Really? I, I went to a Sunday assembly in Nashville, and Neil was mm-hmm. doing a presentation. We we talked, and I said I was from outside of Atlanta, Georgia. He's like, oh, I'm going to be in Cartersville like in two weeks talking to a local group. And that's when I got Jeff's information and, and hooked up with you here locally. Very uh, cool. With, with the local group. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I, I found out about Neil from uh, Mike and Suzanne, who hosted our conversation with Neil at their house. Okay. She had been you know, subscribing to his his blog posting for some time. And, you know, I was fairly new to the atheist movement at that time. So she kind of clued me and said, hey, you ought to get him out here. He doesn't live that far. So I think that's how we all first met. That's so. awesome. And, that, and I was there. That was my That's my Neil origin story. Yeah. I was there <laughs> yeah. as well. It's the, short, it's the shortest one. You got a little walk down memory lane you want to give us, Jerry? That was you it. You were present. That, that was it. I thought it was very cool that the guy that was on CBS, the Godless and Dixie, was was here, was in Cartersville. So I guess my story was a little longer than I thought. <laughs> so tell us your your background. Your you know where you where you became Godless and Dixie, etc., and how that all started. All right. Well, um, you know, my story is a lot of people's stories. I was much more involved in my faith when I was younger. I grew up Southern Baptist, and um, we were marginally involved growing up. I mean, we were sort of there twice a month, maybe, you know, kind of half in, half out. But when I became a teenager, I got invited to an evangelistic conference, and I got saved hard you know, and I jumped right into reading the Bible and getting into ministry. And I went to college and then seminary wanting to be a minister. But I also loved the um, the way that Paul had a job and then also ministered at night. You know, it was so he was he, he said he didn't make his living from his ministry. That's not entirely true. But, uh, you know, you have to have patrons, you know, <laughs> that's how it worked. <laughs> and uh, incidentally, 
interesting discovery. Going back and reading the Bible again as a non-Christian, I see so many things that I used to just kind of try to ignore, like the fact that most of the early disciples in Jesus were moochers. They would just go from town to town, and and if somebody would let them camp at their place for two or three months, then they had food and shelter. And as long as they were making everybody happy, they got to stay. It was a patron system. You know, that's just how they used to do it. But Sounds uh, like damn communist socialist to me. I know, right? So. You know? Anyway, <laughs> so I didn't want to do full-time ministry as my job. So I was always doing stuff on the side. I got pulled into the house church movement. The home church movement, which ah, was marginally yes. connected to the emergent movement as well. There's a lot of overlap. Which I was part of. You yes. were. Mm-hmm. So, it was yep. a lot of buzzwords used at the time. There was the organic church. It was all the same thing. It was all sort of an extension of the Jesus movement. You know, hippie, let's go back to the first days of Christianity and just be communes. And we try that for a while. And good luck. It doesn't last, you know. So it's like a tip to tear it all down and rebuild it from scratch or something. Yeah, and nobody asked the question, did it really did it really work as well as we think it did at first either, you know? I mean, like everything we're reading is filtered through people's theology. But I appreciated my time in home church because I I got to use it as a sandbox, you know, a theological sandbox. I got to watch I I thought of it as a laboratory. I got to watch theology grow organically in a group of people that were determined not to have a theology. You know, they they were just they were they were anti-church as much as possible. So it's fascinating to see when church came back in again, you know, like not just the parts that you really wanted, but all the other parts that you didn't want. It was, it was a good educational experience. Um, but I had a good time there. You know, I had a, a good Christian life, but I did the things they told me to do, which was my problem. You know, they told me to read the Bible. They told me to study theology and study its historical context. They told me to engage others about my faith. And the more I did that, the more I realized I'm not going to be able to keep doing this forever. You know, it, it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks at a certain point, but it wasn't all at once. You know, it takes years for everything to come together. But for me, when you've built your whole life around your faith, that means a complete redirection, you know, and a lot of things crumbled in the process. And it took a long time for me to rebuild a sense of who I was after that, you know, because everything I knew was from my faith. So I, I did that. And I eventually ended up finding a niche in the atheist movement because I was writing about some of the same stuff that they did. And if you read that Jonathan uh, Haidt article, um, you'll you'll see he mentions timing of different social media trends. And one of them was the introduction of things like liking and resharing and retweeting. And if you go back and line that up in the, you know, in the timeline, you realize that most people who went viral and got their 15 minutes of fame during, you know, some of the boom of the blogging movement and the atheist movement, a whole bunch of other conference-based movements, they all were about the same time. You know, it was like a an outgrowth of this new way to produce viral influences. And so a bunch of us got this 15 minutes of fame, like you said, ended up on CBS. And I, I wonder sometimes, would I do that again? Like if I had mm. a chance, would I go back and do it again? Because a lot of people got mad at me for that. 
You know, locally, a lot of people got mad at me. Um, and the funny thing is, they didn't really care so much that it was on CBS. It's once the local paper covered the fact that I was on CBS, things oh. hit the fan then. I started having, I got invitations to dinners to have conversations with different <laughs> different subjects. But anyway, I, I just, I wanted to participate and it was fun and I got to meet a lot of really cool people. But at the same time, you know, conference life and the whole viral growth of different movements was, there's a cycle to it. You know, it can't last forever. And, uh, and I got to see the underbelly of the whole thing, which is true of any movement. There's always an underbelly, you know, and if you get far enough up in it, you're going to find it and you're either going to become a part of it or you're going to leave it. And so I, I've experienced that. I experienced it more in the atheist movement than I did when I was in church, because in church, I was always looking for this like purest idea of what the church would be. And so I avoided the giant, you know, machinery of, of large movements and denominations. But then I got into the atheist movement and sucked up into that. And I found out what it's like to be, for example, in a dispute between high profile people that are like shooting each other and you're in the crossfire. And I'm, this is not my kind of world, you know, like I don't, I don't do well on battle grounds, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter. So, you know, I had forgotten about that, that period of time when people were sniping back and forth. And I Happens guess it's kind of calmed down now, but, but yeah, that was an ugly period of time. It, it seems like what every time I turn around, over? somebody, huh? What was the sniping over? Well, name it. There's like 12 things I could name. It's like one thing after another. I mean, sometimes it's somebody getting mad at somebody else on social media and calling them names or labeling them with something that you're not supposed to be. Um, some of it was true and some of it wasn't about some of the other people. And I got somehow sucked into the middle of that. Um, but like, for example, there were board disputes with some of the organizations. And uh, I ended up somehow in the crosshairs, you know, in the crossfire between two different board members of an organization that were fighting for control. So I kind of got scapegoated. And uh, I'd never experienced that quite so completely until that moment. And I didn't know how to handle it. So that was that was a learning experience. And, and I've come to see that that's just kind of something that humans do. You know, I'm, I was I was talking to this Unitarian church uh, in South Mississippi just a few weeks ago. I'm going to try to put the, the recording of that up on the podcast, but I just hadn't had time to edit it down. But, um, you know, who was it that was talking about mimetic violence and scapegoating? What was that guy's name? You know what I'm talking mm. about, right? Come on. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I, I'm drawing a blank on it too, though. Yeah. Because he, he goes back and kind of looks at the crucifixion and, and questions, you know, how is it that the concept of scapegoat became like the center of this religion, which is pretty Was that fascinating. Richard Rohr? No. No. Somebody no? French. Okay. Somebody French. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, My, yeah. Mimetic violence. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yep. he made a point that, you know, organizations, any groups of people, the larger the number of people, the, the more likely it'll happen. Um, we're really still hairless apes. You know, we only just recently learned how to walk and cook our food. So having these massive plans for what we should be and trying to evolve ourselves like instantly, it's, it's bound to fail in a lot of different ways because we're in such a rush and you put a whole bunch of people together. It's going to have an entropy built into it. Any organization, movement, you name it, church, it has an entropy built into it. And over time, the only thing that fixes it is if you once in a while blame everything on somebody that you're throwing out. Because I watched that happen. It wasn't with my organization. It was with another organization. I won't tell you which one because I don't want to get into any political battles with anybody. But there was an organization that was bigger than what I was a part of. And nobody was doing anything they were supposed to be doing. 
board members, they were all busy. You know, everybody's got things that they're doing and nobody had time to put time into the, you know, the work in. But the moment they had a scapegoat and they kicked that person out, suddenly everybody started behaving. They all started doing their work and turning it in right away. It's like suddenly they had something to prove, you know, they had something to prove, which was... It wasn't them. The only thing, the only thing that was wrong with this was that person. And now that they're gone, we're fine. And I've watched this happen again and again. It's a pattern and it works. People start behaving better because they finally got somebody else to blame everything on. And uh, it just sucks to be that person though, (laughs) you know, really sucks. Sorry, that was a rant off of the side. So you asked me what I'm doing now. Definitely not pursuing the atheist movement as a thing that I love, but I I miss a lot of the people, though. You know, so uh, eventually I would like to start doing some stuff with conferences, especially now that you can do so many things remote. Uh, It's hard for me to get away because I have four daughters, uh, personal stuff there. I've got one that just got back from Spain. She did a semester in Spain to learn, you know, immersive language study in Spain, in Salamanca. And I've got another one who's out of college and has her own job and apartment. And I've got one who's a sophomore, no, freshman uh, at Ole Miss, and she'll come home tomorrow night. So it'll be a fun weekend because it's Easter weekend. I know, right? They are. Yeah, we all are. The the youngest is 14, and she already is taking driving lessons from me. So oh, I uh, hated those times. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's actually pretty good. So she's she's going to be the easiest one of all of them, I think. Uh, anyway, it, so I, my life is quite full with uh, children and work. I teach high school. Uh, and in, it's an inner city school district. I think I teach in one of the better schools in the district, but um, we still have a lot of the resource problems that an inner city school district would have. So our, our job is, you know, we really deserve battle, battle pay for what we do. But uh, I don't think that's going to be coming. So quite honestly, I don't know if I'll be able to stay in it forever because it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't pay enough. You know, yeah, I teach, yeah, I teach in Mississippi. Uh, yeah. I have not made it to the end of a month being able to cover my bills in years just because that's the way it is. I have, well, I went and had four daughters <laughs> and it doesn't cost, you know, it, it doesn't cover your bills to teach. So now, speaking a- of Mississippi and, and schools, has Mississippi moved like most uh, former Confederate states to ban uh, the mention of gay mm-hmm. and uh, CRT and... We're in the process of putting that into the laws because, of course, we have to do that. You know, whatever the um, the the red states do, our state always joins in. We seem to be a little bit slower doing it because I almost feel like um, we got a new guy who's not he's not much of a like go getter. So he kind of waits to see what the other ones do, and then he just does it too. So yeah, mm-hmm. we're banning CRT. I'm pretty sure we already have a bill that passed for that, which is complete BS. Yeah. Um, because yep. you know it's not at all what they say it is, and. Uh, Anyway, yeah, we also have a uh, a mayor right down the street in Ridgeland who made national news because he refused to um, receive grant funds that would put books in the um, in the library that had gayness mentioned. You know, it wasn't allowed. So he wanted to join in with that and, and be a part of the culture. Uh, we, we do. We get a lot of that here, uh, unfortunately, because we're a red state. And that's got to make it tougher to teach, too, is when you're having – because, you know, you can be personally sued. For m- many states are doing that, where as a teacher – yeah. You could be financially responsible if you mess up. You, know? you could. Well, and I've had bad experience in that uh, previously before it became as polarized as it is now and before conservative activists became so focused on school boards in particular. They're obsessed with school boards right now. Like they're moving into school board meetings all over the country like this massive movement. Um, yep. But uh, but I've, I've been through that kind of situation before where I taught for a uh, predominantly white 
school system that was kind of rural in its mindset, I guess you should say. Um, but uh, they found out that I was explaining to the students one day that the human race goes back more than 10,000 years. Oh. And I got called into the principal's office about that. And she said, we don't discuss such things in our classrooms. And I was like, well, it's in the it's in the standards and the textbook and I got to cover this. And she's like, just just try to talk about other things. <laughs> Wow. Anyway, wow. when I asked her, I was like, why, why am I supposed to do that? Because this is a part of the curriculum. And she said, well, you know, there's, there are some concerned parents who have said that, um, that you're failing to separate church and state. Failing. <laughs> I was what? failing because from this mother's viewpoint, who was a squeaky wheel, um, evolution is a religious belief, you see. Ah. And so I was teaching religion, religion to into class. Yes. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that a was point. a fun experience. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I, I am now teaching in a predominantly black. I say predominantly black. I, don't, I haven't had a white student in years. I mean, I think it's been four That's years since I've had black. a single white student. Um, anyway, uh, we don't have sh- problems with talking about critical race. We kind of talk about it all the time. <laughs> right. You know? yeah, yeah, you have to. Yeah. I don't have We're problems with it. that. No, my problems are other yeah. problems, but they're not about critical race theory because we're like we're all critical of race at this point in our our schools. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, I'm curious about your move from is it Pathios or Pathios? Uh, Pathios, oddly enough. Pathios. That's just so, the way the originators. You know, it's like the guy who said GIF. You know. Anyway, it was Pathios. Oh, we're not getting into GIF and GIF. Yeah, let's are not we? do that now. Yeah, <laughs> because 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 it's GIF and that's that's that. That's it. Um, <laughs> and it's past. So, so th- it seemed like a like a good old fashioned purge. Yeah, like this didn't seem like a business decision. Oh. Like you know what we have mm-hmm. these low performing blogs. We're going to you know we're gonna we're gonna kind of trim the fat. Mm-hmm. It was more. You know, we're going to make a decision about what you can and can't talk about, sure. and you guys basically need to go away, which is a really weird, like for now, maybe it, maybe it, I shouldn't think it's weird, but to basically be cut off because you don't want to, like you want to basically say what you want to say and not be bound by some, you know, ridiculous editorial standard. Did you see it coming or am I making it more dramatic than it was? But because it, it feels like it was kind of you know dramatic. Either yeah. talk like this or you're out. Right. Well, it was obviously never put like that. But um, we we definitely saw the writing on the wall. What started happening first was we started noticing that they were cracking down on some of the Christian bloggers who were raising a fuss about things. Uh, what was that guy Warren Throckmorton? Warren Throckmorton. Mm-hmm. He had okay. a, a a blog on the conservative, you know, whatever the evangelical channel, and but he was using his blog to call out high profile people like uh, Mark Driscoll and I forget who else. But he was he was out there exposing things. And at one point, he might have been one of the ones who realized that whoever it was that currently owned Pathios after they got bought out from the original couple a few years back, uh, the board of that included Jay Sekulow, one of Trump's lawyers. Oh, right, right, right. So there was some crossing over happening with some conservatives even then. And so once Throckmorton was pushed out, a lot of us were like, well, it's not going to be long before us because we're also critical of the church. In fact, we're more brutal than this guy is because he's he's friendly fire. 
Um, but uh, what ended up happening is, you know, a lot of us just realized we kind of didn't like the way Pathos was going anyway. Once it got taken over by a Christian organization, the ads got worse and worse and worse because oh, that's always yeah. what happens with Christian sites. They just, they have no filters at all and they take all ads. And I don't even know if it's they're getting anything out of it or if it's just that they don't know how to stop them from happening. Whatever it is, it was, it was disgusting. We all hated that. So we were all ready for a change. And when some of the folks behind the scenes went and set something up, uh, they had funding in place already. They kind of already knew something was going to happen. And I don't know if you heard me say this before, but, um, the Mormon church actually bought out Pathios. Did not know that. The Mormon either. church is now the owner that. of Pathios. So what happened was about a year ago, one of the subsidiaries, I forget what Desiree something or other, one of the subsidiaries of the LDS church bought the company that owned Pathios, bought BeliefNet. And the company that owned BeliefNet. So anyway, now BeliefNet and Pathios are owned by the LDS. But the moment that it happened, they started scrubbing all the references to that everywhere it appeared. So like you have to really dig to figure that out. And there's so many layers of subsidiaries. You have to finally get to something that says Desiree. And you're like, oh, this is this is the LDS church. Anyway, yeah. So I think they they definitely streamlined their brand. And once we realized that they were going to start putting in some new strictures that none of us were going to be able to keep. We said, fine, we'll just take our toys and go play somewhere else. And so that's what we got. So now we have only Sky. And I I like it. I like it a lot better than Pathios because, I mean, I liked Pathios at first when the original folks right, were involved. Right. But you know how that is. When the original folks leave, sometimes it's just not the same. So who are the posters on Only Sky? Is it the same it's, kind of concept? It started of, uh, with the, well, in part with the atheist channel or the non-religious channel of Pathios and then built around them a whole lot of new folks coming in that have a much broader range because the idea behind Only Sky is that it's a multimedia platform that's not just about atheism. You know, even though that's where a lot of us are coming from and so we're still kind of writing some of the similar things, they're nudging us into other areas to expand what we want to talk about, which is kind of where a lot of us are. You know, I mean, I'm much more interested in talking now about how easily we are controlled through social media than I am how easily we are controlled through religion. I feel like social media apps are actually more powerful than God now. And so I'm going to start trying to think about how I'm going to explain how I and my children can grow up as critical thinkers when everything we do is online and it's all being handled by algorithms that we don't understand. and They're smarter than us. You know? So are you going to do that within the confines of social media or are you going to find other opportun- other distribution platforms to get your message across? Because that always seems to be the, you know, problem. The, the problem. Well, obviously what we need to do is, is reach out in as many new directions as possible, which means a lot of old dogs are learning new tricks. The guy who is the main funding behind Only Sky is he's basically a venture capitalist that's done a lot of new media lives in Silicon Valley and he's he specializes in new media. So it's all about trying to figure out new ways of putting this stuff out there. Stuff that's more video based, more podcast based. Every article has the audio in the top, just kind of like if you're reading an Atlantic art, Atlantic article, there's going to be the the audio and it needs to be high quality. Um so a lot of that is kind of streamlining what we're doing in more of a journalistic direction. You know what I'm saying? Like more of a professional journalism direction, which I think a lot of us liked. 
You know, we kind of wanted somebody saying, here, right. you, you start talking about these things and think about these things. And what would you want to say about these things? And it was good editorial direction. So I, I appreciate it. And Dale McGowan's still the head of, you know, the, the, the bloggers, basically. He's one of the, I forget what his title is. He's got a whole bunch of roles, but he's one of the ones that helped facilitate the change. And obviously him at Meta and the Freelay Atheists is like the core of that whole channel that we built this around. But it, yeah, it's growing into a lot of directions that are a lot broader than just atheism. So it's perfect timing for where we are personally as we're writing. So that's like post-atheism. Like yeah, I guess. Kind of, kind of talking about before we went on the air. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously there's more things we got to figure out than just the God question. It's just that the God question keeps coming up so much, you know. Uh, I, but I got to find new ways of talking about it so that it's actually making a difference to the people I talk to. You know, I still very much live in a Baptist world. This weekend, I'll be doing Easter dinner with the folks, and I'll be going to church on Sunday because I've got a nephew being baptized. And I'm not going to say no, you know? Right. It's yeah, my nephew. Yeah. They asked me to come, so I'm going to come. And now yeah. I have to not write about anything I hear while I'm there because that will make somebody mad. <laughs> but it might come out years later. <laughs> In code. <laughs> right. It's not going to come out now. Some church that was not my family's church had this happen one day. <laughs> so when you talk about the God question, the God question is uh, increasingly and in terrible ways wrapped around the political question. Yes. And it they seem more intertwined than ever basically because of Republicans. Sure. Um, you know, even even I think was the lady here that basically said that she wanted to to bring Christianity and the state government closer. Oh, the woman lo running local here yeah. in Georgia. Yeah. Uh, guns, God, and Bible, or something along those those lines. Yeah. It, you know, and everything done against gay, transgender, or black. All all being it's all done. Mixed in. Racism, in transgender religion. issues. Uh, for sure, uh, for sure. But so yeah. you can't really, you can't really separate. Like atheism, like my atheism, seems as intertwined with politics and policy more so than ever. And I don't see that changing because if it doesn't, that means basically you're not fighting, and you're. Based letting you know letting it happen, and that's what you're saying. We can't yeah. let it happen. Well, I mean, obviously, there's nothing inherent in atheism as a topic that would make one change their political views. We've seen that. That was a bit of a shock to me. I think I just assumed. Oh. Since for me, a realization that I was wrong about religion also made me start learning new things about social issues. You know, um, and or at least I, maybe I just came to care differently about the social issues, which is a little bit harder to put into words sometimes. But anyway, the more I got into that, the more it changed my political views. But then I came to find out that a large swath of atheists were very opposite from me on political issues, and they're going even farther in opposite directions because they're getting pushed by the culture wars. They're getting pushed by the polarization of public discourse as well. And I just get less and less of a taste for either extreme, um, which does not mean I lose interest in politics because I'm very interested in politics. I would like to not see the strongest democracy in the world fall apart 
and it's already happening. It's just, you know, it's like a slow motion train wreck because the people who are making decisions for us don't even understand the concept of how it's supposed to work. You know, like I, I grew up in a private school in Jackson, Mississippi. My education was private school education. And what I learned about American government history is that we liked the idea that people got to make their own choices and didn't let somebody else have more power than everyone else. You know, I was told that George Washington willingly stepped down after his first term because he didn't want to be and he didn't want to be called king. You know, those are the sorts of things they taught me in school. And so the more people's idea of how government should work approaches authoritarianism, you know, or, or monarchy even, I just I become disgusted because I can't believe this is the same people I grew up with. Like, what happened to you? Right. But right. they just they had the crap scared out of them. So what's what happened? They got brainwashed by conservative media to see demons around every corner getting ready to tear America apart and hurt their children. And it fear works, you know, and it's made them a little bit crazy. But it's not just the media, though. It seems like that has taken a turn in the church itself. In other words, many of the pastors mm. have taken a hard right turn into, mm. you know, politics and all that as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's what but I think Don't they have there. their finger in the air, though, too? Aren't pastors ultimately politicians anyway? Sure. I mean, yeah. it's very unusual for a pastor, particularly of a, a big congregation, to stand their ground on what they believe as opposed to going... What's right. going to go over the best on Sunday? Right. Well, you have you have somebody in the church who has more power than the pastor, probably. Most churches, the ones that I've been at, you know, the pastor wasn't really king. There was there were other people, like either the board of deacons or elders or something, and or just a really rich couple of families in the church that have been there for two hundred years, whatever it is. And uh, somebody calls the shots, so they end up having to not step out and pick battles that they know they're going to lose. So that definitely happens. But growing up Southern Baptist and growing up at First Baptist in Jackson under Frank Pollard's pastorate, I got this idea that um, Southern Baptists were not supposed to be political, which in and of itself is actually a political statement because it means you're withdrawing from the situation and not taking any responsibility for it. So that's an issue in and of itself. But there was a concerted effort not to get involved in politics. And during the years when denominational fighting was happening in wealthier states, honestly, because people cared more about them, like Texas and Florida and other places, Tennessee, those were the hotbeds of the conservative liberal battles within, you know, Baptist life. And nobody cared about Mississippi. We might have cranked out a bunch of the people who were involved in the controversy, but our churches were just not that into it. And First Baptist wasn't. Uh, they just kind of stayed out of the fight. And so... Now my children still go to that same church, same church I grew up at. You know, they still go with their mother because she's still a devout Christian and my family of origin is still there. And the new pastor is actually family. He's he's family through my ex-wife. And so it's like a like an uncle sort of cousin of one of my children. Anyway, long story. Um, he never talks about politics because nobody will do it from that pulpit. You can't stand in that church's pulpit and get into political discussions. You can do dog whistle all you want, you know, you can drop hints here and there. But if you take a direct issue, a uh, direct statement about some voting issue, you're going to be out of there. That's just one of their things. You don't do that. You know, so some churches still think that way, but they also are not stepping into showing people how they are getting sucked into politics. You know, there's still a responsibility for the pastor and the leadership to see things like 
their members reading QAnon stuff and believing that the, the, the election was stolen through satellites in Italy, flipping all of the votes uh, against Trump. There's people in the church that believe that. And if I were the pastor, I'd want to call that out. I'd want to say y'all are not using critical thinking skills, but you can't keep that job if you're that kind of person. You know, yeah, people are going to leave the church if, if they're not in, in alignment. So, yeah, yeah, well, they will. And, and then the people in power will get rid of you and replace you with somebody else. I'm pretty sure I've seen that happen a couple of times in the church already, that church. So eventually it, nature selects the ones who aren't going to pick a fight. So they do nothing to resist the polarization. They do nothing to resist the cultural drift that everybody else is getting from all the other sources, not the church. They're getting it from, you know, Rush Limbaugh at one point and then Hannity and whatever else they're watching. They'll watch Laura Ingram and then they'll listen to somebody on a podcast and they'll get on a Facebook page and they get fed all this information because their pastor never did step into it. He, he avoided it. Meanwhile, that vacuum is being filled by other people with no direction whatsoever and no capability for the pastor to speak to it at all. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't. He would just get fired and they would replace him with somebody who won't. You know what I'm saying? The whole system just sort of militates against this. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I would so, say I mean, that's yeah, I mean, also good for business, though, too, because you could you could position yourself as a bedrock against all of this. And they always have... You know, uh, have done that. You know, th th this is where you go to get away from the sinful whatever. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, the secular world above the fray, so to speak. Sure. This is this is where you know this is your this is your shelter from that. This is your rock and your stability from all those terrible things that all those terrible people are doing. I got a great illustration for that. Uh, do y'all watch shows on Netflix? Yeah. On Netflix, folks, have you watched Haunting of Hill House? No. Did you watch um, Midnight Madness? Yes. Same same people did. I, I know they did the... The guy same, who same made uh, Midnight Madness went... And his first thing that I think I saw... Well, that was... I saw um, Midnight Madness first. Then I went and saw Haunting of Hill House. Haunting of Hill House... And I'm, I'm not a horror fan, but I got I got talked into watching it and I got hooked immediately because first of all, I like the way he tells stories. I like the actors that are in it. Um, you know, it's not high budget. It's like low budget Netflix series kind of, but, but well done. The guy is really yeah. good. There are some monologues. You got to get over the occasional monologue addiction that he has where he has things he wants to get into. And it felt a little bit like reading Christian novels when you get to a point in the book where you realize the person's been talking for so many pages that this whole story has just been a setup for that speech, you know, yeah. and they just went and wrote a story around it. But I started thinking about the story again, and I'm going to go on and spoil one thing. The house that's obviously haunted, because that's the name of the show. Yeah. Um, the house is a metaphor for the church and for the Christian yeah. faith, because this guy used to be a Christian, and yeah. clearly he used to be an addict of some kind, because one of the most common themes in his shows I've watched so far is that somebody is an addict, and they take them through the process, and in the course of conversations, he's doing therapy with the audience, you know, throwing out gems that you would get from going to AA meetings and being in a... You know, being in a house for folks who are trying to get over addictions. Anyway, he um, he wrote a clear metaphor for the church in which the house that's haunted is the church. And I haven't had a conversation with this person, but if I ever do get to talk to him, I'm going to say, this is what you meant, right? Because I'm pretty sure this is what you meant. The house is the church. And 
it has this power to draw people in because it 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 needs the people. It has a stomach. That's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's okay for me to say that. It has a stomach because I think it's worth saying it. It eats people, <laughs> but um, it, not physically. You know, it, you'll see what I mean. It, it consumes people because that's the fuel that it runs on. But the problem is it has to also convince the residents of the house that everywhere else in the world is awful for them. And they need to stay there because it's the only place where they can be safe. But it's not. It's luring them in, you know, like a Venus flytrap. And, you know, people in the different characters start figuring that out. And everybody who gets pulled in by the house's trickery, um, they, they each have their own weaknesses that are, that are exploited by the house. You know, the house has a way of smelling desperation and going after whatever the thing is that people need most and offering that to them so that they come in and, you know, become enslaved to the house. Does that not sound no. like the church? Yeah. yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's it sure does. such a perfect analogy. I'm, I want to watch it again and just write about it. But anyway, I, that was yeah, the interesting show. They give you both you the illness. They give you the illness and the cure. And the cure. Basically. Exactly. And so does the house. Yep. Exactly. Yep. It's, it's a metaphor for the church. It's amazing. Wow. It's, a, right. it's like well, I'm gonna to, it's I'm one season. That. It's like a show you watch once and then, you know, you kind of know how it ends. But I got sucked in. You know, it. his stuff is described as a slow burn, especially Mid Midnight Madness. You get halfway through the whole series before you realize, oh, that's where this is going. <laughs> you know, it suddenly makes a lot of things uh, explainable. But, yeah, I, I love shows and their ability to pull out people's experience. And I'm seeing more and more shows that clearly came from people with religious trauma. And his stuff is a great example. And you say he's a he's a non-Christian now. The guy that I don't know what he is now. My guess is he's probably avoiding labels, you know. But okay. he's clearly yep. somebody has done a great deal of <laughs> he's deconstruction. On a journey, a he's on a journey, aren't we? Are we're all? <laughs> he's that's deconstructing. Deconstructing. He's deconstructing. That's the cool. That's what the cool kids are doing. We were deconstructing so we, we before actually, it was cool. We, we're talking on the um, on the eve of the American Atheist uh, Convention this oh, yeah. Easter weekend, which is here in Atlanta. And this is going to be the first in-person convention that they've had in a couple of years because they've been yeah. doing everything, you know, remotely and everything. So wh where do you see the, you know, air quotes, you can't see because it's a podcast, uh -huh. the atheist movement going? You've been in it so long. You know, I feel like with a lot of movements, it, it had a function that's not gone. It's going to continue, you know, because it's going to continue to be a thing that everybody needs to talk about. And it's an identity that people relate to and, and own. Um, I think that it was a hotter item. In 2013, 2014, 2015, and again, the hate article, it talks about the timing and how a lot of us kind of saw things explode during the same time period. And a lot of that owed to the way social media could make things happen so fast. You know, it made people popular extremely quickly. Not only, not always necessarily the people who should have been popular. And that's one of the problems that hate talks about is that algorithms don't care whether you have character or you're intelligent or you have anything of real substance to contribute. If it clicks, it's going to go, you know, and it's going to lead. And so that becomes the culture shaping stuff. And it's always trivial, you know, and in a way, sometimes the people who end up leading the charge in things like movements are the people who need attention the most. You know, and, and then once they get into a certain amount of attention and power, they, they like it a little bit too much. And all the, the nasty stuff starts coming out. It's the same problem. It almost have with sounds all like people. you're talking about David Silverman. 
Uh, I mean, <laughs> I could pick out, I could pick so many names. Um, but you know, I, I think a much bigger issue than him specifically is just the way that the way that the culture wars split the atheist movement, just like it did everything else. You know, I mean, we watched it happen first with Elevator Gate. You know, when oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. when I forget her name, but anyway, she was Rebecca um, Watson. Yeah, Rebecca is Watson. That? And yeah. if I remember right. All she was doing was just saying at the end of a video, you know, at the end of a conference video, she was just saying, maybe don't, don't ask a woman to your room at three in the morning in a, in a, an elevator by yourself. And one of the problems with people who frequent conferences is that they're not always the most socially aware people. Not always. Some folks that save up all their money all year to go to a conference are, you know, they're, it's a fandom right? It's a fandom. And Mm -hmm. so the more devoted to a fandom someone is, they tend to sometimes be a little weird. Maybe they're smart, but not great at picking social cues and not great at talking to the opposite sex. And so a lot of problems happen at conferences. And and they they might be liquored up too. And they're liquored up. So they're even worse. And yeah. So anyway, the problem wasn't that she said, don't, don't hit on us in the, in the, an elevator at three in the morning, please. But what happened was all the people online became so nasty because that's just the way the internet works. It brings out the nastiest people and they piled on. And before long, people had to pick sides over which side of this are you? And, you know, it just kept going from there. And now we've got people that are like flat out alt-right white nationalists, like Daily Wire loving, you know, what's his face? Uh, ben Shapiro. And oh, yeah. they're, yep. they're, they're yep. full on into one culture. And I'm thinking, how did you even get pulled into that? Because there's nothing about it that appeals to me, you know, but that it, it apparently. Yeah, but then when you say appeal. that, but when you say that, you're like, oh, maybe I don't really have anything in common with you other than this one thing. Just, right. yeah, exactly. So that's yep. nothing yep. to build. That's nothing to build a lasting thing off of. So when you talk about a movement, to me, a movement is something that would be a catalyst for other things. So to whatever extent the atheist movement and whatever continues to be left of it and whatever it becomes, it's of use as long as it continues to generate things that are actually moving forward and asking better questions, not just, is there a God and how can we best make fun of the people who still believe in it? You know, but how about, how about what, what you got that's, that's different? If you don't have church and theology, what do you have that you think will compel not just one or two people individually, but billions of people to behave well? What do you got? Cause I want to know. I want to hear those ideas. Religion can give people that and they do it wrong. You know, they pick the wrong things. They can be arbitrary things that were decided in 3000 BC, but there's something. There's at least structure. If we woke up tomorrow and somebody could magically snap their fingers like, um, what's his face uh, from Marvel? All of a sudden, his name just disappeared. Oh. <clears throat> Y'all are Mar- I'm going to go with Thanos. Them. Thanos, thank you. Snap your finger. We call it the snapture, where half the people suddenly disappear. <laughs> if, you, if you could just do that and make religion disappear, wake up in a world where religion never existed, something like it would have to take its place. Because right now, humans seem to be wired for certain things, and religion keeps morphing to fit whatever that is. That's why I keep saying it's not, you know, with all respect to Augustine or Augustine, it's not that we have a a God-shaped hole in all of us. It's that we have a lot of hole-shaped gods. 
that are running around. And each one of them we created to fit all of our needs. And that's why there's so many of them. Because every 100 or 200 years, our needs have changed so many times. He used to be like a brutal asshole. Now he's he's more passive aggressive. He's nicer. You know, he's softer spoken, but he still treats you bad. <laughs> he talks nice. Well, and- and isn't QAnon an example of that? Like of a religion, religion creating itself out of nothing? <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is because, you know, I had this whole thing I want to write about, about how I had Christian mentors back in the day who accidentally said true things and they didn't realize how true what they said was. Like somebody was talking about the people in the Bible being larger than life. And he was like, I mean, nothing's larger than life. And when he said that, I remember thinking, Huh, you're right. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, do you know how many things that invalidates, though? Um, (laughs) But I talked to this old religion professor who had been a missionary in, I think, China and maybe India. He was like an old, old missionary. He'd been a lot of places in Asia. And somehow I got sucked into a conversation with him in his library one night about theology. And he let slip this one statement about how he was studying a a new area's religion. Uh, But he called it their culture first. He said, I was studying a new area's culture. I mean, their religion. And then he said, well, I mean, they're interchangeable for me at this point. And I thought he was a devout Baptist minister. You know, I'm like, I think there may be a statue of him somewhere on my college's campus. And he made a point about how studying other cultures made him realize that religion is a subset of culture. It's it's a kind of culture because what it is, is it's a structure that codifies beliefs and memories and stories and art into something that can be passed along. Um but what he said about other religions can be said about his own, obviously. It's just right, a culture. Right. And like cultures, they literally change and grow. You know, if you have a culture in a dish, it's not going to be the same thing 10 years later. It's going to be something else. It made so much more sense to look at it that way. And so I see that happening with the church too. It's constantly evolving into something else. And right now it seems to be following the internet more than anything else. And I don't know what that's going to mean is next, quite honestly. I think we're seeing it. And... I think it might be another hyper object that something is so big that we can't really grasp how both terrible it is and how quickly it has expanded. Because how long, what has it been, two months? And pedophile accusations are now, mm-hmm. are, are now like the stock and trade of politicians mm-hmm. everywhere. Right. And that can't end well. You can't sure. it, when you're when you're that far out. There's no way of retreating. How do you walk back? You know, sorry, I called you a pedophile. I mean, you know, of course, Democrats <laughs> aren't pedophiles. And teachers happen. aren't. Uh, same. You know what? You you, I, I would assume, would start to feel it, it at school. Uh, how, how many times do you hear the term grooming? And not you've got, at my school. Well, because <laughs> my school is not, not conservative. School, but within your within your district, and talk about being spread through social media. Mm-hmm. These are these are gross accusations sure. that again you can't walk back from. What's next? I mean, yeah. like I don't. We've know. not That's a good seen question. a satanic panic. It feels really like that in, though. Pardon mm-hmm. me. It feels like it that. Feels it feels like, like it, satanic it panic, but like a new oh, one every month. But the, but the problem is they happen faster, and you know you can't. It, it's how, how does that? How do they work? We're going to also find out in the internet world, because like you can't just 
back away from it like earlier Satanic Panics and just kind of go on like you usually did. This one just seems to... This one's writing laws you have to follow. And uh, yeah. quickly, yes. yeah, quickly they are, and you know, and, and obviously there's there's going to be a place for activism for those that have the resources and the time to put into it. Just talking about it doesn't seem to change a damn thing because people are only hearing what's in their own bubbles, which is part of the problem. I think that's the way the system wants us to be. It wants us to be separated because we're easier to control that way, you know. And I'm and I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing the system just like I'm anthropomorphizing social media to say that. But think about it that way. Pretend like social media is, in a way, the progenitor to artificial intelligence. Think about it that way. What if all those little apps you pull up on your phone, each one has an algorithm, software written by somebody. Think of it like it's a little species that was just created. It has things it's designed to do and it wants to do, and it's going to learn new skills, and it's going to learn you. It's going to study you and try to learn to influence you. And so in a way, we're constantly interacting with AI all the time. And not that any one of them is trying to to network everything with each other because there's not enough hardware for that, but somehow or another, it still creates mass behavior just the same. And we're becoming extremely susceptible to this kind of thing because it works on us. You know, it's so well designed to find all our buttons. You know, ironically, it's got buttons, but we're the ones with the buttons getting pushed, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's working. And I think that the, we have to start developing a way of relating to this thing as if it's a, a person that we have to create boundaries for. Because otherwise, it's creating a very docile populace that it's very hard to influence because it's so good at finding all of our buttons. And, um, I, you know, I, I feel like that's where a lot of our attention just needs to be. And um, I think that what happens is people get so used to trusting their little bubbles that – think about it this way, okay? If um, – Again, the hate article talks about how um, previously you had communities giving um, a structure to people's lives, you know, especially if you lived in a smaller town. Your family might have even been from that town, and your whole narrative is based in that place. But that doesn't happen as much anymore. Now we move around so much, we, we start new communities and meet up with new people, and we either meet them in real life by being in a community physically, or we found them online. Well, first... First, the social media wave hits starting around 2013, 2014, to where all of the lines start realigning again and people become more polarized. And Trump happens as a symptom of that, you know, and a consequence. Then COVID hits where people don't even have places to go to, physical places to go to. All they have is this little pocket of digital space with people, many of whom they never meet with algorithms they don't know and don't love them, redirecting who they're going to pay attention to, not based on the fact that they had something good to say or were good for them to know, but simply because they said something the funniest way possible. So that's what ended up rising to the top and becoming viral, you know? And it's it's like our our lives are being shaped now by not random chance, but just by algorithms, you know? People are learning to talk by just watching algorithms create the ideal stupid thing to say that you think is funny, you know? And I don't know how we're going to deal with that without becoming conscious of how it happens to us, you know? Learning to to do some metacognition about how it controls us. And then the next question is, how do you then teach that to anybody else who's not motivated to work that hard to think about what they do? I want to hear how it goes this Sunday when you're at church. And I think you should start to talk to just 
people there about meta, metacognition. Yeah. You know, just I think if you say metacognition, ask, they're just ask what? them what they think about it. You know, like I was, I, I was looking what at do you think Twitter about the other thinking? day. No, what do you think about thinking about thinking? <laughs> uh, it's good to meet you. I have to go. Yeah. <laughs> Who let him in? Who let him in? But I remember but, you, you know, used as, to be part, important here. As part of that, though, you know, one of the byproducts of COVID is the work from home. So a lot uh, of companies yeah. have gone to just, you know, no more going to the office. You're working from home. So that mm-hmm. kind of takes that element of community. You don't even have the, the one, co- yeah, the water cooler. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. To actually All the talk places, to people. If I, if I were, okay, if I were a centralized artificial intelligence, which I think, by the way, that's the problem. I think everybody who tries to imagine a singularity, they always think of it as a singularity, as if it would be exactly like us, a centralized, you know, consciousness. What if that's not what it is? What if what we are calling the singularity and the, you know, the takeover of a higher life form is actually began a long time ago? It's happening in so many ways we don't really understand it. It's not about one single mind coming together. It's more like we're becoming susceptible to tiny little non-minds, you know, inside our devices. I'm sorry. Where are we going with that? Wait I'm, a minute. I'm you're do- not. You're not about to. You're not about to drop that we really could be living in a simulation, are you? I'm not. No. Is because that, okay. the thing is, <laughs> if we were going to go. <laughs> my feeling is, even if we were, I mean, what would you do about it? So, how about you just pretend like you're not? I mean, mm-hmm. yep. you might as well. But there was a point I was trying to make with that, and I was trying to get too big of a thought into my <laughs> the AI, and um, I just I think that we've been thinking about it wrong, and. If for the sake of argument, because this is how we we understand things better after we've projected ourselves onto them, you know, like that's that's how we approach the universe. It's how we talk about robots. It's how we talk about animals. You know, everything we do to get to know something and relate to something, we, we project ourselves and our personality onto it. So fine, let's do that to algorithms and social media itself. If I wanted to be the most perfect social media platform for generating revenue for the ones who pay for my servers to run, um, I would want to divide people up as much as possible into tiny little pockets that don't talk to each other unless I tell them they can talk to each other by making sure that they see all the same things. Now, that makes it sound sinister because you're putting intentionality into it, but that's a very human thing to do. Remove the intentionality. What if it's just algorithms doing what they were created to do? It's working. We're becoming less and less willing to talk to each other, to understand each other's point of view, which makes it impossible to actually move forward. And that's our biggest problem is is we don't even have common language anymore. Again, the hate article, he starts out with the Tower of Babel as his metaphor. He says, I cannot think of a better metaphor for what's happened to American life in the last 10 years than the Tower of Babel. The the story doesn't say God stepped in and destroyed the tower. It says he went in and confused their language so that they wouldn't continue to do what they were going to be able to do because they were going to become to the point where there was nothing impossible for them. That's essentially what's happened with us is we're having all these feelings of late stage capitalism now in our country and watching democratic institutions be undermined from within. You know, I mean, during the Trump administration, all the people put in charge of each of the different divisions of government were people who were known for hating that specific function in the government. Yeah. Tear it down. 
It, yeah, it was, it was, it was vandalism more than anything else. And somebody mm-hmm. said, you know, if you, my kids do vandalism, my students vandalize things all the time because they don't feel ownership of the stuff. It's somebody else's stuff. They don't care. And if it's somebody else's stuff that they don't think is really for them and does any good for them anyway, of course they're going to piss on it and spray paint yeah. on it and break stuff. That's what they did in government. They were so convinced that the government is just helping poor black people and Democrats. They got in there and just tried to tear the thing apart, just dismantle it from the inside. And they did a pretty good job. You know, it's like they trashed the hotel room. Now you got to go in and clean it up. That's kind of what's happening right now. And I think that's the feeling that a lot of people have the, you know, the older white crowd, people that look like me and that live here. They feel like they're truly disenfranchised because they no longer have the place in society they used to have. And I can't explain to them that that's, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It was never supposed to be just them calling all the shots anyway. Yeah. So uh, when you say that it turns people docile, I would probably argue that it's, it, it, the opposite. Turns them reactionary. It, 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 it to turns me, that's them, docile. I don't mean placid. Them, I mean, easy to control. Oh, uh, Okay. Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay. I mean, I, I've got students in my class that I know exactly how I could set one of them off. I got one sentence I could say to one. It would be so innocent. She would yell at me for the next five minutes full of a profanity-laced rant. I know exactly how to do it, but I'm not going to do it because I don't want to. But I keep telling mm-hmm. her, stop letting people push your buttons. But she can't do it. She doesn't know how to <clears> resist. But That's if you were docile. an algorithm that had a financial reward for I'd be rich. setting that off. Oh, yeah. I yeah. could Actually, I wouldn't because what I would do is I would just never do it and be broke like I am now. That's my problem. Mm. I do have a conscience, and that's why I may <clears throat> never be rich. So, you know, one thought that popped into my head is we were kind of talk, talking about the atheist convention that's, that's coming to town this, mm-hmm. this weekend is like, are these conversations like we're having here, you know, about kind of the reality that we're living in right now, are those going to take place? Are there going to be speakers that speak to those kind of matters? Because that to me is the urgency, you know, (laughs) criticizing the church and, you know, theism and all that, Mm -hmm. you know, which is what they were known to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, that to me is is non-essential. It's not just boring, but it's... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Dangerous to continue that conversation. The conversation we're having here about what is happening to society and to culture mm-hmm. and how we can, you know, fight the the uh, you know, the downfall of our, of our country. That that kind of stuff, to me, would be what we should be talking about. Well, what, so so you're what are you fighting for? more speakers this weekend talking about that this type of stuff than you will, you know, how the Bible got it wrong or, you know, where, you know, where the church got it wrong kind of a thing. So, yeah, I think we're good there. Yeah, I'm but just Jeff, when you say uh, that, what are you fighting for? Like when you you say that you know you're like you're fighting against something. Like before, you would you would be fighting against the church, or we're fight, fighting against kind of religion. Let's say that that that's been established. You know, there's there's atheists all over. What are you fighting for? Because if well, you like can't we, if you can't put that in an elevator pitch, you got a problem. Well, like we were saying, you know earlier is religion and politics have become intertwined. And and so you can't just talk about religion without talking about the political influence that, that's happening, you know, and, and dare I say it, the white Christian nationalism that's going on right now. 
you know, that is uh, something that needs to be out front and and talked about. So yeah, but but are you trying to are you trying to convince somebody something? Because if you if you if you basically say religion in that respect is bad, you've lost them. No, no. But again, I'm talking about our our side, the people that are for saving our democracy, that that are you know against you know what the other side is doing. You, know, you, you could have put a period after saving our democracy. Yeah, because the other side is is has the same goal. They they think they're saving no, 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 our yeah. democracy. Yeah, they don't understand our democracy. democracy. Right. We yeah. we right. we could why why can't we be pro saving our democracy yeah john do you well, think that do you think that's a bad message because they're saying the exact same thing yeah it's, you, you're just getting the same argument from both sides are they saying point. democracy or are they saying save the country they're saying save america save they're america. not saying okay. save our democracy save they're saying save right, america exactly because i yeah because mm-hmm. i think they realize that yeah that it's not really democracy they're trying to save no. definitely it's not democracy is what they're going for team they're america trying to save Right. They're trying yeah. to save God's country. Their exactly. idea of America. Right. Well, I'm just glancing through the, the, the list of speakers. And I mean, most of the folks that I know that are at the conference and speaking are, are pretty good folks that I think would be talking about things that matter. You know, some yeah. of them would be probably hitting on some of the stuff they always hit on just because they're crowd pleasers. You know, mm-hmm. like um, most of the folks who have been on the speaker circuit, they've got like a handful of things. Maybe they even put out a book at some point and they can go through the content of the book, you know, PowerPoint, everything. And it's a fun presentation. So it'll probably be kind of a redux of that with some new stuff put in. There'll be a lot of that happening uh, with a few po- folks probably stepping out to talk more about political issues. And I, I hope that they'll also address some of the issues the movement itself has gone through. But I mean, there's only so far you can go before... 12 people in the room who are actually a part of what you just talked about are in the room listening to you talk about it. And, and it's just, you're, you're about to pick a fight. And I think right yeah. now, everybody's so happy to have a conference again for crying out loud that I have a feeling they're going to be on their best behavior and try to talk about less controversial things, unless it's something they feel really is important, you know, for the conference itself. I could be wrong, but I don't know. I thought about trying to, yeah. to do a talk at this one, but I just haven't been in conference mood in a while. Uh, I might see if the uh, American Humanist Association still needs anybody to, to pitch in a talk for their thing in May. But I've also been sitting on oh, my they bum. have They have a conference in May? Where, where is it? I think it's in May. They usually um, – it's either May or June, and it's it's virtual. Theirs is going to be virtual, oh, so it's okay. not going to be an in-person thing, okay. which is which is yeah. fine. I mean, the the in in-person conferences are fun. You know, it's a lot of fun. I've had a lot of fun at conferences, uh, yeah. but at the same time, it's easier to do virtual just because yeah, you can do it from in here. Yeah, and American humanists tend to be more activist oriented in their in their talks and their. They are. They've got a legal wing that works really hard on progressive issues. You know, one of their lawyers at the AHA is actually spearheading the. um, It's like a. It's basically a personhood movement for primates. Uh, I can't remember what the name of the organization she runs is, but she's she's put forth. um, What do you call them? Um, When you go to the Supreme Court and you've written a what's it called? Amicus brief. Like a brief, she's written briefs and and, and things like that for um, a handful of like high profile primates. Uh, I don't remember. I, don't, I think maybe apes or gorillas, and they're 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 making a legal case for legal rights of those primates. And it's a fascinating expansion of humanism because one of the problems I've had with humanism is it's got the word human in it. Which makes mm-hmm. it sound a lot like my Christianity of the past that said, well, you know, there's all the animals and then there's people. 
And that's part of our problem. Part of our problem is that we see ourselves as a completely different thing than the rest of the animal kingdom. And so having somebody that's fighting for that on that end, I consider that humanism. You know, I, I think she's doing good humanism work. That's Monica Miller. And, um, oh, yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah. And, uh, she's yep. just great work. She's a hard worker and that's what she's passionate about. I see that as humanism because even though it's not a human, the whole point is the word itself is insufficient for what we're trying to say. Right. You know what right, I'm saying? Yeah, it, yeah. And we need a better word. Yeah. Branding. Branding. <laughs> it's yeah. a branding problem. <laughs> yeah. So primatism, is that what we'd say? <laughs> well, so uh, then the next question is going to be, by the way, have you seen dogs? free, have you seen free guy? Yes. No. Yes. Free guy's got, um, Ryan Reynolds in it. You can yep. watch it on, I forget what it is, Hulu or HBO max or something. Funny movie. Cause I like Ryan Reynolds. I think he's really funny. Um, but it, it's, it's another play on the concept of what if an algorithm became sentient and had the personality of Ryan Reynolds in this case. It's a funny concept to explore because it also explores edges of who we are. That's what, that's what I love about it. I mean, it's not just about the theoretical question of at what point do we say that an intelligent thing we created is now a person? That's an interesting question philosophically. And for them, if there is a sentience involved, it wouldn't be an academic question. But what if humans are behaving more and more like bots anyway? You know, think about it that way. We've been thinking yeah. about the singularity as this thing that we're eventually going to reach um, at which, in so many cases, the AI revolution would be when a uh, – what's that test where the computer can talk to you in a way you don't even know it's computer? The what test? What's that thing called? They mention it in um, they mention it in Ex Machina. Uh, the Turing test, I think it is. I the think, Turing yeah. test says basically right. we will know that we have created um, an artificial intelligence that's even smarter than us when it gets to the point that we can't even tell we're talking to an artificial intelligence. It would fool us. Well, here's a different side to the Turing test. What about the point where? Humans, you're talking to humans and you don't even realize you're not talking to a bot because you can't tell the difference anymore. What if, what if more than 50% of your day is spent interacting with people who might not even be people as it is? Or they're it's not called Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like how much of our interaction and things that we have picked up over the last three or four years were actually generated by something random, like whatever created QAnon. It's just, it's more like it's a culture that just sort of spontaneously generates itself in the goo of, of the internet and it becomes like a living thing with a life of its own that, you know, its own that births other children. And I feel like we're in that point now where the pink, the things I see people saying online, I could almost write out the script for you ahead of time because I've seen exactly the same response so many times that it feels like they're reading scripts. So again, I ask, what if people start sounding as much like scripts, which is what software is, it gets to the point where it's not just about how high the bar is for AI to reach. It's about how low the bar is going to go for us before we can't even tell whether the person we're talking to is real. So the technology, you know? the, the higher the technology, the dumber we get because of it. Yeah, well, and the less we're able to tell who's a person and who's not to where the, the, the distinction is becoming less important. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, like there's faces on Facebook now that I, I find myself looking at wondering if it's actually a real person because I've got there are people that have been deep faked that literally don't exist and were created by an algorithm. 
And then there's other people that are real, but I've never seen what they look like because every picture of them I've ever seen was so heavily filtered that it looks less real than the one that the AI created. Mm. And only one of them's real, and it's not the one that I thought it was. You see what I'm saying? I feel like this is an existential crisis that we're already in that we have to figure out how to get our heads around and deal with. And I, have, I don't have any solutions. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. But I find it fascinating because humans are behaving more like bots than anything else now. You've heard of Dunbar's number, right? The idea that um, uh, humans seem to be able to manage and maintain up to about 100, 120 meaningful relationships at a time. Outside that, it becomes less and less meaningful just because there's so many hours in a day. And it's just that was I don't know what research he based that on, but they call it Dunbar's number around 120 people. I try to think about the people I'm connected to online and there might be like a thousand or, or more online that are our Facebook friends, but I don't actually meaningfully interact with any more than a handful of them. Some of that's Facebook's fault, but um, <laughs> at the same time, they're not people I would see going out my front door either. So yeah, the number kind of makes sense. So now take a, take a species that's oriented psychologically and emotionally to handle that many relationships and then tell them they're supposed to be a part of a global society and they're supposed to take personal and emotional responsibility for things that happen in Thailand or that happen in, you know, places they, they will never get to in their life and don't know anybody there. And it's, it's hard to, to be a global citizen without kind of getting a little bit Absolutely. crazy about it because we don't know how to, we don't know how to be a global citizen. You know, you can think globally, but act locally. You know, that, that phrase. I think that's the only way you can act, you know, and there have been moments where I've seen myself or others get pulled up into something larger than what's right in front of me. Something actually, like I said, CBS was national. That was a fun thing to do. I got to meet Mo Rocca. You know, we got to hang out and switch dirty jokes and stuff. It was, it was a lot of fun, but it's not real life. To suddenly be on a TV screen, you know, you can't interact with yeah. anybody and the people that you hear from when that rush of popularity happens, they don't know you, they don't know anything about you. And, and honestly, most of the people that knew me online up until just a couple of years ago, they knew whatever they, whatever version of me they could find online. But then what happens is that can be shaped by other people. You know, you mm -hmm. make the wrong person angry and now all of a sudden there's a completely different version of you out there. Maybe even two or three versions that would disgust you if you ever met that person personally. But large numbers of people might think that's actually who you are and you have no control over it <laughs> because that's the way the Internet works. That's not meaningful interaction. That's not meaningful relationships. And it's really it's taught me to step back and reevaluate just how how much I value connections to people I can't know well enough for it to be a full relationship you know we have to be discerning about these things because it can really make us a little bit a little bit unhealthy emotionally because we're trying to be more than we are we're trying to be larger than life you know and that's the well, problem know, it, i think we get sucked into that and i don't think it's healthy to think that way i mean a good example of that is is the ukraine war going on right now is mm -hmm. we try to involve ourselves and be empathetic and sympathetic and supportive a lot of people you know i haven't been on facebook very much at all, but I know a lot of people have changed their their profile to the, to you know, like the, the, flag. the blue and yellow flag mm -hmm. and all that. Like that's going to really do something. Makes um, you, you feel know, better, um, like thoughts and prayers. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Same thing. But I mean, you know, it, it's it's hard to wrap your mind. I, I struggle with that every day when I turn in the news and then you know listen to what's going on. I can't really wrap my head around what's going on over there. I can't imagine mm -hmm. like Marietta having bombs and right. you know, people dying on that kind of a level. 
So uh, how do you yeah how do you deal with that kind of thing? I can't. And we're not can't. we're not programmed like you say. We're not programmed to to wrap experience our heads the emotional that. pain of somebody that's on the other side of the planet. I mean, it doesn't mean I shouldn't feel solidarity with them because I do. Right, and do what we can. It's yeah. just that I have to stop at some point and remind myself I can only do so much, right. and I don't need to get pulled into that mentality that I'm supposed to be more than just me. Like I've got to somehow be larger than my own life. My own life, it needs to be a life that can actually make a difference in people's lives, but but I can't take responsibility for for things way beyond me. And and if I keep doing that, it's going to make me psychologically unhealthy. And the problem with psychologically unhealthy people is they're easy to manipulate. And that's right, the problem. Right. So many of us have become so drained by the trauma of COVID and the polarization. And now this, right. Everything. It's just, it's we're getting torn apart from each other, which is exactly what they want. Because it's easier right. to move the pieces around when they're tiny little pieces. And you're you know? disoriented. And right? it doesn't even have to be a sinister, central mind behind any of it for it still to be bad for us and to still be something we should become aware of, call it out for what it is and deal with it. This is actually one of the things that I appreciate churches for. My children have grown up in a Baptist church. One of the things they've always had is a little bit of a Luddite tendency to feel like um, technology could be a threat to faith because it is so engrossing, you know, and a lot of the Christian families that I know, including my, my ex-wife, and she always had stricter rules than I might have come up with on my own for things like screen time, curfews, more structure in general. But the thing is, that's been very helpful. I mean, in some ways it's less and in some ways it's more, but learning to control your own screen time and get out and do other things mm -hmm. and connect, read mm -hmm. a book, an actual book, you know, and th whatever, right. whatever gets you away from the screen. These sorts of things are hugely helpful. And I don't know that we've done enough pushing of that, but people in the church actually kind of have that. They kind of have this suspicion toward technology and they're teaching their kids to not get too engrossed in what's on there because it's clearly a threat to their faith. I mean, the right. stuff that comes through this computer screen is, is just death for their faith, you know? Uh, it, it, and so I get it, but it's, there's a good side to that. And that is that being a little bit suspicious of this magical thing that we've created is not a bad thing. It kind of keeps us more aware of, of, of how well we're being controlled. If they could just point that toward the church, we'd be yeah. set. But I'm more worried mm. about everybody else pointing it towards things besides the church. You know, we can't be constantly blaming everything on the same group of people and the same subcultures because there's bigger issues that are that predate conservative Americans. I was going to say a big part of it is just human nature to yeah, begin with. Yeah, exactly. That's and where I was going with that. the church is just a vehicle. Right? Yes. Right. We're not going to change who we are. And things like the golden rule, that he who has the gold makes the rules – I could maybe be a part of a movement that helped nudge that one direction or another for 50 years, but 50 years later, I don't know that anything would be left of it. Because look at the labor movement, the labor movement of the mid 20th century. It made such a time of prosperity for the middle class, and now it's kind of gone. It's like the oh, whole thing's just more been erased. Kind of gone. It's been eliminated. It's gone, yeah, and gone. so. And, and how discouraged would I be if I spent my whole life trying to build a movement and realize that it's this stuff doesn't always last because humans aren't that we're, we're fickle, you know, and, and in the end, the most powerful entities somehow still end up being the most powerful. They just they just shift around, you know, the, the, the costumes that they wear. But that's it. It's still hmm. the deepest pockets that make all the biggest decisions. And I haven't changed that. And I don't think I'm going to. 
most controversial thing that's happened there is divorces. The last few years, divorces of billionaires from their wives have generated a ton of generosity. Mackenzie Scott is kicking ass. I don't know if you've been following her, but she's she and Jeff Bezos, they uh, – or is it Bezos? I always said it wrong. It's Bezos, isn't it? Anyway, it's like Patheos and Patheos. I know. Well, Bezos and she, they split up. It took years for it to finally happen. She's given away everything she's getting out of the divorce. She's constantly starting new foundations and giving it to universities. And it's fantastic. The men Maybe she should pay her tax. Maybe she should pay higher taxes instead. I'd, I'd honestly like to see her using it for the things she's using, though, because she's actually pretty intelligent about it. The boys are all building rockets so they can go to Mars. Yeah. <laughs> they should pay I'm more so taxes glad you too. got a space rocket, man. Good job. Yeah. Why they don't you pay, pay a lot employees more enough for them to live on? Oh, I know. But the taxes, again, he who makes the gold has the rules, yeah. makes the rules. So yeah. what are you going to do to change that? I don't, I don't think I can change that. I need to pick something I can actually change. That's my feeling about that. <laughs> I need to pick something I can actually do something about. We would love to have you back on at some point. This has been a fascinating conversation. I bounce all over the place. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no. I mean, but I mean, the social media aspect of something that that we might want to just focus entirely on that at some like, point. Do That's a, kind of a whole hot podcast for... on just that one Atlantic article. It'll take a while to get through, but I need ah, to read so it. much I need good stuff. It. Challenge it's accepted. Really good. <laughs> All right, do it. Pick that thing apart. That's right. But yeah, we so appreciated your your time yeah, uh, tonight. Could it's been a fascinating you. conversation, and we just need to you know do this more Let's often. Do it again sometime. Sure, sure. And if somebody wanted to reach out to you, wanted to get in contact with you, you got you know, anything you need to plug or anything? Along yeah, those well, lines? you know, in the past, I think I was always just plugging Godless and Dixie. And if you go to godlessanddixie.com, it always redirects you to where I am. That used to be Pathos, yeah. and now it's at Only Sky. But um. Yeah, when you get on Only Sky, you can actually subscribe to get notifications for anybody that's on there that you like. So okay. you want more of Hemet's stuff, or maybe you follow Cassidy McGillicuddy. Uh, you know, a lot of the folks that I like the best because we've had a lot of conversations and talk about some of the same stuff. They're um, they're there, and you can subscribe so you get email notifications. And fortunately, it's not spam stuff. It got to where Pathios, if you were subscribed, you got like oh, vitamin yeah. supplements and yeah, yeah. something about the Shroud of Turin. And I mean, it, it just there's no telling what's going to happen. <laughs> it was next. true. You're not yeah. going to get that <laughs> stuff. True. Yeah, this is a di different group of people entirely. I so bought that's a good. towel of Turin off of it. Did you? Good howl. job. <laughs> Have you gotten what, any colds since then? Um, I will say you can go to, there's a podcast. I do occasionally do a podcast, Godless and Dixie podcast, and it's on Spotify. So you can always go there okay, okay. to, you know, hear some of the stuff that we do. But the audio is is at the top of a lot of those articles on Only Sky. So that's kind of my favorite thing about that. So Is that you recording or is that a robot? No, me. Me. Ah, like, cool. Do we like, really like know? Just, yeah. Like I do we, yeah. Some, do we really I, I, know? Yeah, I posted when something AI tonight. Enough, we won't have any idea. So <laughs> yeah. every article that you write for them, you also have to record and submit. You don't have to, but it's strongly oh, okay. encouraged because they're trying to move towards a platform that does that consistently. And that obviously okay. depends to some degree on your capabilities of recording. But I have this closet that's perfect for recording and doesn't have a lot of go. echo, so I can do it. Don, are you a team and, player not or not? I mean, really. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the storms. I'll send you a link to, for example, I just put something up tonight that's called um, okay. How Christianity is Like Bitcoin. Ooh. Yeah. Fascinating. It's only four yeah. minutes oh, nice. to read, so it's it's pretty quick. It's just sort of a, a, a brain burp. But uh, yeah, you can go listen to it because I got the audio at the top. Got up at five this morning to finish it. 
All right. <laughs> cool. Well, we need to get you back here to Atlanta, too. To oh, that'd be uh, fun. I'd love to come back to Atlanta. A live in person with our group. Let's so do it. We need to make that happen. So. It's more import beers. Well, thanks, thanks again for, for doing this. We really appreciate your time tonight. All right. So. Thanks, Greg. And we'll see everybody in about two weeks. Someone invented a party and the devil is my friend yeah.